going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you were here last year, and most of you were, we were in 1 Thessalonians 4 as well. But as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, I kept going back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and saying, hey, this is a perfect continuation of what we were talking about uh, last year. Last year we were talking about how... Um, your manliness is threatened by several things. And one of those things being sexual immorality, letting impurity just run wild in your life. That actually threatens your manliness. But tonight I want to talk about how idleness and laziness also is a threat to what God wants you to be as a man. Now let me be clear at the onset. My aim tonight is not to call you to some form of Victorian masculinity. I'm not here to tell you you need to open the doors for women more in your life, although maybe that would be a good idea. That's not really what I'm going for. Actually, if you ask me, when I watch videos of Victorian masculinity, I am a little bit annoyed by the men there because they do nothing and they sacrifice nothing of themselves for other people. It's always all about them. But I'm also not here tonight to call you to some just mere first century version of manliness either. I'm not, I'm not holding up the first century as this idyllic age. What I am going to tell you tonight is that God's word has been revealed to us in the first century, but God's truth about what it means to be a man and what it means to be uh, a man who works hard and, and loves others, what it truly looks like. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. No, I don't believe being a man is being the next you know, gladiator like Maximus in the arena. No, I believe being a man is actually the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. I gave you one note that I wrote down in your books, and it's that quote by Doug Wilson that I really love. Whenever I think about what it means to be a man, biblically, I always think of that quote. The glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. I believe that is actually a biblical description of manliness. For example, you look at the life of Paul, and what do you see? You see the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. This man is glad to put burdens on himself so that others might not be burdened, and so that he can do spiritual good for other people. He, he embraces it with a gladness. He sees it as a responsibility. I want to work hard so that others may benefit from my work. And ultimately, I think we see this from Jesus himself, don't we? We see the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. I am going to take the sinner's trouble so that they can be justified in me. Declared righteous before God, he gladly embraces this sacrificial responsibility. He does something that benefits someone else, that requires personal sacrifice. That's what I see uh, masculinity as in the Bible. Now, like I said, I want to talk tonight about the threat of manliness, this kind of manliness. Once again, we're not talking about what the world says when the world says what a man is. I'm talking about that kind of manliness. I'm talking about sacrificial responsibility, manliness. But there's a threat to this. I'm going to tell you it tonight. It is the lack of ambition. Think about that. Write that down. The lack of ambition. Or you could say, you, your manliness in this way is threatened by wrong ambition. Lack of ambition or wrong ambition will actually be 
threats to who God has called you to be as a man and showing up late. No, yeah, no, you're good, you're good. Uh, let's talk about lack of ambition really quick. What does it mean to have lack of ambition? It means you say to yourself, God doesn't care about how I work or what kind of job I get. I don't really care. Matter of fact, I'll start thinking about all those things when I feel like it. That is lack of ambition. God doesn't care. I don't care. And maybe someday I'll care. But until I start caring, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to live my life right now. That is lack of ambition. And that is very unmanly. Or how about wrong ambition? You maybe are on the other side of ambition. You have a lot of ambition. You want to do a lot of things. You have a lot of big dreams. And you're willing to walk over anyone to get to those dreams. I would say there's a lack of manliness, biblical manliness in that, because that is wrong ambition. My aim tonight is, is kind of just to walk through First Thessalonians and answer some kind of practical questions. As we go through it, I want to kind of tease out some practical applications for what it means to be a man of right ambition. And we'll answer the questions, what are the ambitions of an ordinary Christian man? What are the ambitions of an ordinary Christian man? Or this question... What kind of life should I aspire to live if I want to be a godly Christian man? What kind of life should I aspire to? Or even more practically, what kind of job should I seek? What kind of job, what kind of career should I pursue if I want to be a godly man? How can I best prepare myself for the kind of job, career that I should pursue? Now, I don't think I'm going to say anything incredibly amazing to you tonight, so, just like what Chris has been kind of talking to us about, this is kind of a, a reminder, maybe, perhaps, for some of you. Maybe it's new for some of you, but for some of you it's just a reminder, and that's okay. Let's talk about that, though. First, let's unpack the biblical picture a little bit of the ordinary Christian living that we see in First Thessalonians 4. This, once again, is just the ordinary Christian life. You see this. Um, this is exhort, uh, exhortations from Paul. First uh, Thessalonians 4, verse 1 says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who sets this aside is not setting aside man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, that was just a re recap of last year, but now let's go to our passage, verse 9. Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will walk properly towards outsiders 
and not be in any need. Let's just talk about that for a little bit. First off, let's kind of understand where we're at if you're taking notes. First, write this, the setting. Let's unpack the setting really quick of this exhortation that we have here. Uh, the setting, what is going on in Thessalonica at this point, and how does that connect with your life and what we're talking about here tonight? Well, how many of you uh, have been to a church building before? Good. All right, good. Ken has not. I don't know why that is, but there we go. Uh, uh, when you enter into a new church building, what perhaps do you notice outside that building first? What do you notice outside the building first? Any, any, any guesses? Yes. The outside of the building, yes. Doors. Doors. What? Cross? Anything Parking else? Lots. Parking lots? Yes. People. People? Still thinking of another thing? <coughs> yes? Stained glass. Stained glass? Yes? Pigeon poop. Oh, no. Right, okay, maybe I'm just from like an old thing. And a signs? Signs? Did somebody say signs? A logo. A logo? What does the sign usually say? It, it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to introduce this church in like a, an expression or a phrase, right? What a mission statement, like in a word and in a phrase, like we're here to talk about real things, you know, like something like that. Uh, uh, love God, love people, those kinds of things, you know, all those kinds of phrases. If, if there was a church building for the church in Thessalonica, I would argue to you that the sign outside of their church would actually say this, although I wouldn't say this because they would never say this, but if you wanted to know what this church was like before you entered into this building and experienced the church inside the building, it would say this, welcome to the excelling church. That is what Thessalonica was known for. That is what the New Testament is always talking about when it talks about the church of Thessalonica, the excelling church, the church that is going above and beyond, that is blowing everybody away in the world, that is that is showing everybody in the world what it looks like to be a Christian. We look to 1 Thessalonians as kind of like the model church. That could be the, the word that you use to, to think about Thessalonians in one word. Just It's model. This is a model church for us. And this is helpful because, once again, this is a very young church. This is a very new church. And, and that's, 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 I think that's important because you can be young and you can be excelling. Uh, just because you're a new believer doesn't mean you can't already be an excelling believer that is an example to other people. Uh, just because you're only months old in the faith doesn't mean you can't already be evidencing things like love, faith, and hope. That is what this church was known for. Chapter 1, verse 3 uh, Paul is saying, we're remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfast of hope. Paul can remember these things of the church well. And now he's even seeing evidence of them again. Just a little bit on the setting here. I would say this is a very encouraging setting because you too, as a young man, can be excelling in spiritual goodness. You too, already in your life, can be an example of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and even be a very young follower of Christ because of this church, because of the setting that we find ourselves in, in this church. Once again, this church might have been only a few months old when Paul was kicked out of town by jealous Jews and chased them out of town, and they were left without Paul as their shepherd. And, of course, he had to run all the way down to Athens, and then finally in Athens he sent Timothy back to the church of Thessalonica because he cared for them, and he wanted to know that they were doing well. And then he was, 
he was rejoicing to hear that they were not only surviving, but they were the excelling church. Welcome to the excelling church. And of course, this is the letter Paul writes back to them saying, you are excelling in every way. Matter of fact, uh, you could you could kind of describe First Thessalonians 1 through 3 as Paul's thanksgiving in light of his absence. I was pulled away from you for a time, but I am thankful to God because God has prospered you even though I am away from you. But that leads us to the second part of the letter. And we talked about this last year, but I think this is very helpful to, to remember again. Paul doesn't just say, I am thankful for you. No, Paul is a father, a spiritual father who cares for the church in Thessalonica, and he also has urgency for this church. So just as chapter 1 through 3 were Paul's thanksgiving in light of his absence, I would say chapters 4 through 5 are Paul's admonitions in light of Christ's imminence. Christ is coming back soon. That's what imminence means. He is coming back soon, and you do not know when. Therefore, we must have urgency about our life. Even the excelling church. If, if you are doing well, if you're growing well, if you're growing in the Lord, if you're being strengthened in your faith, the call to you is to not let off the gas. That's what Paul's saying here in 4 and 5. You are doing great. Notice his words there, right? Even though you're doing great, we ask and exhort you, though, in the Lord Jesus, that you walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, Right? Don't step off the gas. And of course, the reason for this, the reason for this is kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. Just because you are excelling, just because you're doing well in your Christian life, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be on high alert. Doesn't mean that you should just feel free to step off the accelerator, so to speak. Because you have a spiritual adversary who knows how to cut down excelling churches too. And this is why God has written this letter to us through Paul, right? If you are excelling, these are the things that you need to press into because this is the very way that your spiritual adversary is going to want to cut you down in your young, excelling self. We talked about this last year, but how does the devil try to slip up young faith? How does the devil try to slip up particularly young men in their faith? Well, it's kind of outlined here in chapter 4. He tries to slip you up from strong spiritual starts through sexual immorality, right? That is a great way to derail great starts. We also see at the end of chapter 4 here and then going into chapter 5 that he also seeks to cause strong starts to slip up through theological confusion, particularly eschatological confusion, study of the end times, being confused about the end. That is actually how the devil wants to uh, discourage our labor and cause us to not work as hard and cause us to slip up. But what I want to focus on now is the devil also likes to use another tactic, another little you know, bullet in the gun, so to speak, to cause young growth to slip up. And look at this. It is called lazy ambition. Lazy brotherly love. Lazy ambition. Let's, let's just zero in on that. Notice verse 9. <clears throat> Paul turns to brotherly love. Once again, this is him exhorting. Once again, this is him exhorting 
the church that is excelling to continue in these things. And he urges them to brotherly love, even though he says, you don't need to be taught about this. He confirms that their faith has been proven genuine because their love has been demonstrated from the very beginning. They have been taught by God from the first day. What is he talking about? This is exactly what Chris, by the way, has been talking to us all weekend about, right? There is this absolute categorical shift that happens in you when you become a believer. And you are filled with the Spirit and all of the resources that the Spirit brings to you. And one of those, one of the the primary evidences of having the Spirit of God in your life is this thing called love. Your life is controlled, governed, led by this thing called brotherly love. And that's what he says. You have been taught by God. It's evidence that the Spirit of God is in you. The fruits of the Spirit are very apparent in you. Great evidence they have proven already. You can see it even here, right? They have, um, they have shown this in how they have acted towards all the brothers in all Macedonia. They haven't just lived for themselves and cared for their own church. Notice this. They have been sacrificial in caring for other churches all over Macedonia, which is the little region over there above Greece. This is a church that is marked by the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. They not only can embrace and take care of themselves, they're also taking care of, through generous giving, many other people. This is an extraordinary church. And once again, this is all essential in pleasing God, loving the brothers. Now, before we get into kind of the idea of lazy ambition, maybe some of you are thinking in the the back of your heads like, how is it that you are saying that this is manly if this is a letter written to all of the churches? Well, I have one reason for applying this to you all tonight, and it's simply this. The way the men go in the church is the way the church goes. The, the examples of the church should be the leaders of the church, and the men should be the leaders of the church. If the men of the church are failing, the church will be sure to follow. If you are failing in ambition, the church will follow. If the men don't guard themselves against this, the church will soon fold. The church is led by the men, so anything... Calling to the church, I would say, is calling to the men as well. As the men go, so goes the church. And once again, this brotherly love that we're talking about here tonight isn't a mushy feeling. I would say this brotherly love is is very sacrificial. Once again, it's very masculine. It is self-sacrificing ambition for the good of others. Notice what he says there. Um, notice how he notice, notice what he says there. We urge you, no, no, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly loves, brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it towards all the brothers who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more, and, verse 11, to make it your ambition to pursue these qualities of brotherly love. Brotherly love. Ambition, by the way, is just to strive for something. Strive for something like that gets a prize. There were people in that 
era and that time and that period that would strive for public praise. They were rich people who would strive for public praise by doing these big projects, these civic projects in like the city center and things like that. They'd set up, you know, like what we consider of a new park, you know, and they'd put a little plaque on it and they'd say, hey, this park is brought to you by... Joe Schmo over there, isn't he so great? Don't you love Joe Schmo? He's so cool, right? They did it for, they had this ambition to achieve this praise. Now, it's kind of interesting that Paul would say, make it your ambition using that word, somebody who seeks public praise, but really what this is probably meaning is, hey, live a life that's seeking for praise upon Christ's return. Live a life that's living for Christ's return. Now, once again... uh, how do, how do these ambitions that we're about to talk about have anything to do with brotherly love? It'll connect in just a moment. So just put a little pin in that and think about that for a minute. We'll come back to there and show you how these all connect to brotherly love. But for now, let's just talk about the second thing, the ambitions. That was the setting. Now let's talk about the ambitions. And particularly, let's talk about the ambitions of brotherly love. What should a young man strive for to keep himself from becoming slack in brotherly love? What should a young man strive for to keep himself from becoming derailed and disrupted from his early spiritual growth. We see three ambitions here, and I would say there are three ambitions of brotherly love. Number one is you should aspire to a peaceful life. Aspire to a peaceful life. You see it there in the LSB. Lead a quiet life. To literally be at rest, to be not moving. But probably what Paul is saying is, I don't want you guys to just be sitting on your couches at home. That's definitely not what he's meaning, based on what we will soon see in the rest of this uh, exhortation here. But what this is saying is, hey, don't be someone who disturbs the peace. Don't be one of those kinds of groups of people that have nothing better to do than to run around and cause trouble wherever you go. You're bored, so you cause trouble. No, you should live a quiet life. Don't be a public menace for any other reason other than the fact that you are sharing the gospel and that causes the world to be turned upside down and everybody hates you for that. But let no other accusation be brought against you other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have a peaceful life? What does it mean to have a peaceful life? Let me just share with you a few thoughts on what a peaceful life looks like. Number one, as I've already said, it means you don't cause uh, public unrest, it's, it's you're not leading a mob in attack whenever your way isn't, isn't um, given to you. Matter of fact, in Acts, we see the Jews accusing Paul of this very thing. So perhaps this is what he's talking about here, right? I was kicked out of town. People said, I was turning the world upside down. But don't let it be said of you that you are turning the world upside down for any other reason other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live a quiet life. Or how about this? This is another way you might experience or enjoy a quiet life, you will enjoy a quiet home. If you have a quiet life, it means you have a quiet home. It means you have a home that is ruled by the word of God. And what happens when you have a home that is ruled by the word of God? You have a peaceful life. Now, you might have conflict in your life because of the word of God, but when your life is dominated by the word of God, there is an inner peace that often, often results in an outer peace, right? As the man of the house is dominated and controlled by the word of God, there is a peacefulness about his life. There is a quietness about his life. There is a control about his life. And that will ripple 
into the lives of everybody else in his house. Live a life that is a quiet life that causes everyone around you to have a quiet life. That is what you enjoy. You enjoy a quiet home. How about this? Uh, To have a quiet life means you also enjoy sufficient means. It means you are simple in your life and you also work hard in your life and you have adequate resources to take care of your needs. You have a quiet life. You're not constantly out on every single street corner desperately trying to find money to pay for all of your bills. You have a quiet life. You take care of your own. You enjoy sufficient means. Or added to that, you enjoy the ability to give to others. You have a quiet life. Your life is not in chaos and you're not constantly just stretched to the max with every single paycheck so you can actually do good things for other people because you have a quiet life. Oh, to have a quiet life also means is you enjoy the knowledge of your own limits. It's a quiet life when someone has humility. I am not God. I cannot do everything. I am not the Messiah and Savior of this world. I have to clock in, and I have to clock out. And when I clock out, I want to go home thinking to myself, I have worked hard for every moment of this day, and now I'm going to go home, and I'm going to work hard for my family. And then I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to sleep hard because I am human. That's a quiet life. It's saying, I know where my limits are, and I want to be faithful in those limits. But that's actually a very quiet life. Your life isn't chaotic. You're not constantly trying to work all the time, but you know where the different areas of your life stop and start and things like that. To have a quiet life is to enjoy the knowledge of your limits. And and finally, I would say this, to have a quiet life is to enjoy the fruit of sanctification in your life. And this is what I've been talking about kind of all throughout all of these points. And this is something that I continue to come away from whenever I think about the fruit and the result of having sanctification or spiritual growth in your life. Your life will be marked by a peacefulness. That is a sanctified life. You are not constantly in spiritual chaos within. You have a quiet life. What a great thing to aspire for. Lord, give me a quiet life. A quiet, contented life pursuing you and pursuing your glory in all things. Make me satisfied at the end of every day. Make me satisfied as I embrace my kids. Make me satisfied in everything and in all that I do. Give me a quiet life. How about this? Aspire, secondly, to a uh, uh, self-dominion in life. Aspire to self-dominion in life. What does that mean? You seek to... Be first living a life of self-mastery before you try to master everybody else. Who likes to receive counsel, correction, criticism from someone who doesn't have their life in control, right? I remember there was this one incident in my life where there was this this woman, she was in a a church long ago and, and she had become a life coach, but her family was in shambles and it was always just kind of silly to me who's going to receive life coaching from you you don't even have your life under control you need to first have self-dominion in your life before you can ever expect to help or do spiritual good for anybody else that's what he's saying here mind your own business 
You are first and foremost thinking about yourself and minding your own business. Now, by the way, this cannot mean that the Christian is just saying, hey, we all live in little isolated, like, you know, silos. You live in your life. I live in my life. We don't talk to anybody about their life. We never, we never ask any questions about anybody else's life. We all just mind our own business. That's not what Paul is saying here. I think mainly what he is saying here is you work hard at dominating yourself before you seek to be the master of other people. Why do I say that? Because elsewhere in this very letter, Paul says the true mark of a Christian life is that it does have care and concern for others, and it does speak to others in its concern. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 14, sorry. He says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. They're seeming a little nosy there. Encourage the faint-hearted. Once again, putting their nose in other people's business. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And then notice what he says in verse 15. uh, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, etc., etc. What is going on here? The meaning must lie somewhere between, right? I, I, I mind my own business in isolation and I never ever think about anybody else and I'm a busybody in other people's business, right? That's what must be happening here. What does it mean to mind your own business? I'm once again saying you're first someone who seeks to master themselves, who first is thinking about your own business and all your own shortcomings before you seek to be a master of other people and their weaknesses and their shortcomings, Or you could say it this way, you're so busy, you're so busy trying to master yourself that you don't have a lot of time to stick your noses in everybody else's business. But at the same time, you are dominated by a brotherly love that wants to do good for other people, and you see people struggling, and in a desire to do them good, you seek to help them. Or to put it this way, you're not talking about people's business behind their back, you're seeking to do them good in front of their back, right? That's the kind of man who is minding his own business. And by the way, there's there's a logic to this. When you don't really have a quiet life, when you don't hold a solid job, you don't have anything else to do than to mind everybody else's business, right? There is something incredibly blessed about having a busy life, right? I don't have time to mind everybody else's business. I've got so much going on in my own life that I need to mind. There's a quote by... There's a quote by a general, Douglas MacArthur, different than John MacArthur, although I think they're related somewhere. And he uh, wrote a prayer out for his son. Now, I don't really respect Douglas MacArthur at all, spiritually. I think he's kind of an arrogant guy because he was too good at everything. Uh, But I really like this prayer that he writes out for his son for one line and one line only. But I'm going to read you the whole entire prayer that he prays. And this is what it is. Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending and honest to feet and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishbone will not be where his backbone should be. A son who will know thee and that to know himself is the foundation stone of knowledge. Lead him, I pray, not in the path of ease and comfort, but 
under the stress and spur of difficulties and challenge. Here, let him learn to stand up in the storm. Here, let him learn compassion for those who fail. Build me a son whose heart will be clean, whose goal will be high, a son who will master himself before he will seek to master other men, one who will learn to laugh yet never forget how to weep, one who will reach into the future yet never forget the past. And after all of these things, are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of greatness, the open mind of true wisdom and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. That's what a dad wants. Build me a son who isn't freed from every challenge of life, but given the challenges of life and is strengthened through them and give me a son who will be master of himself before he seeks to be a master of other people. That's the kind of man that I want to be. And by the way, there's an ironic result to the person who minds their own business in this way. You will be pursued. People will see that you have a quiet life and a life that is under control and you will want to Pursue that person, right? I want to be like that person, so I'm going to seek them out. Now, let's look at our last aspiration. Last aspiration is this. Aspire to a productive life. If you want to be a man of God who's not derailed or anything by the devil, aspire to not only a quiet life, not only a a life that has self-mastery in it, but also a life that is productive. Or, in other words, work with your hands. Aspire to hard work, men. That is what will protect you from great spiritual danger. And all of that is really what we want to talk about tonight, right? Paul will put work ethic on a level so high that if you do not have strong work ethic in your life, you are in a very dangerous place spiritually. So aspire to work hard with your hands. So what is he talking about here? Paul is not calling people, by the way, to get rid of all of their white-collar jobs, you know, tapping on the computer and taking on blue-collar jobs, digging with a shovel. He is not saying that. Probably what he is saying, working with your hands, is just an expression that refers to kind of a uh, the the kind of job that most of the people in the congregation had. It was a common expression for work. It might also be an expression for particularly hard work or honest work. It was it was an expression for working for your own bread. If you were uh, someone who was stealing from other people, that's Ephesians 4.28. But it seems to me just learn to work hard and learn to make an honest day's living. That's good for you. And it's good for your spiritual soul. And now I think this is where the background of 1 Thessalonians really helps us understand how these ambitions connect with brotherly love. So turn over to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 reveals that there is a condition threatening this young, excelling church. It had so much going for it, but there was a condition threatening this church, and it was laziness in many of its members. Laziness in many of its members. Paul 
recognized this threat early on in this church's life, and he exhorted them. Notice even back in 1 Thessalonians, he had already talked to them about this, and now he was admonishing them again. And now in 2 Thessalonians 3, he's going to be admonishing them again, and even stronger in his language. So it's almost as if Paul's saying in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll read 2 Thessalonians in a second, it's almost as if he is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, guys, if you keep this up, if you continue to be lazy in your ambition like this, this will take you to places that are very spiritually dangerous because he sees where this is headed. Uh, for example, First Thess- Second Thessalonians 3, we will see what kind of life a lazy life produces. They were not earning their keep in quietness anymore. Verse 12. Such persons we commanded and exhorted in the Lord Jesus Christ that working with quietness, they eat their own bread. People weren't doing this anymore. They weren't earning their keep in quietness. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember, live a quiet life. These people aren't enjoying a quiet life like what he was exhorting them to. And they're actually discouraging the generous givers of the church and causing perhaps gospel ministry to suffer. Look at verse 13. Uh, He exhorts them, but as for you, brothers, do not lose heart in doing good. There are some people in the church that are losing heart, perhaps because of these brothers that are lazy. And who were these who were these people that were discouraging the gospel ministry who were not working very hard? Those who were surprise, surprise, busybodies and disturbers of the peace. Remember that? You're aspiring to a quiet life and you're aspiring to minding your own business. But what's the opposite of a quiet life and minding your own business? Being a busybody and a disturber of the peace. Look at verse uh, 11. We hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's what Paul's been talking about in 1 Thessalonians. And now here is where the church is at today. They are lazy and they are disturbing the peace and being busybodies. And now, don't you see how this connects to brotherly love, right? All of these things are connected to brotherly love. Your laziness can become a direct hindrance to others around you. It can discourage people around you and it can lead you to being a a waster of your life, a waster of your time and just a disturber of the peace. It can do the exact opposite of causing the church to grow. Generous giving is good, but it can be discouraged obviously by lazy members. Now this is what I think is happening here, by the way. Uh, These members didn't like the kind of manual labor that was required of them to earn an honest day's wage. But they realized something. I'm in the church, and I'm in a church that's very generous as well. This church will provide for all my needs. I can have a great life. I can enjoy myself, and I don't have to aspire to anything and be totally fine. But notice what that caused. That caused them to discourage the church to such an extent. Look at verse 15, that Paul even says this, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but, but, oh, sorry, 
That's 15. Yeah, uh, verse 14, I mean. And if anyone does not obey our word in this letter, take special note of that person to not associate with him so that he will be put to shame and yet not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Do you realize that laziness is a disciplinable offense? You can get kicked out of the church because you are only thinking about yourself and sucking the generous joy out of the church, right? It is a dangerous thing to be a lazy man, to not aspire to anything. It is a trap that could throw you off of a strong start and cause you to have a a horrible, horrible ending. And all of this is just emphasizing here, just to make it clear to you, the importance of hard work and aspiring to a life of hard work. Do you aspire to that? Do you aspire to having a quiet life, a life of self-mastery, and a life where you have satisfying work? Because that will actually keep you from incredible spiritual danger, spiritual laziness. Notice here, uh, hard work is actually a spiritual issue. Hard work is actually a Christ-likeness issue. Hard work is some is coming from someone who doesn't just view their job as a job, but views their job as an act of worship to God himself. You, you say, I can do lots of different things because my callings as an ordinary Christian man is to live a quiet life, to mind my own affairs, and to work hard and make an honest day's living. That is what I am called to, and in doing this, I am actually not working just for myself, but I'm actually working in a way that's worshiping Christ Jesus. Turn over to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking to a lot of different people in Colossians chapter 3, and he is calling them to the high life of following after Christ. And notice in verse 22, he talks to slaves. Now, perhaps if you were a slave, you would say, this is a terrible job. I would not want to have that job. I I cannot see anything redeemingly significant about this job. The best thing that can happen to me is that I get out of this job. That's maybe our American nature speaking back into a culture that didn't think the same way about slavery as we do. But still, being a slave was not the easiest job to have. But notice how Paul speaks to them. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. What an incredible thought. When when you are serving your earthly master, you are actually serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have this kind of imagination about your work, your whole life is transformed. You work heartily because you are serving Christ, not your earthly master. This is an opportunity to praise and to worship Christ Jesus, right? Now flip that on its head, right? I said hard work is a spiritual issue. What is a lazy life? What does a lazy life mean about your spiritual senses? It means that you think what you do does not matter to Christ. And it means that you have separated your life 
from the service of Christ in all things. You do not see yourself as a slave of Christ. When you see yourself as a slave of Christ, being a slave of any earthly master doesn't matter, right? I am simply called to honor and obey Christ wherever I am called. But notice here, hard work is a spiritual issue. And I would also say, once again, hard work is also an issue of brotherly love, right? You are either right now setting yourself up to be an encouragement to the local church or a discouragement and a, and a consumer of the local church. You're going to either be a giver to those people around you based on your aspirations right now as a young man, or you will be a taker of other people around you. Brotherly love, manly love, is a love that seeks to embrace the glad, sacrificial responsibility and never seek to be just a consumer, but a giver. Right? Hard work is a spiritual issue. Hard work is a brotherly love issue. So let's just end on this. What does this mean? What does this mean for the kind of job you should aspire to? What, what kind of direction, what kind of career choice should you eagerly seek? Well, I mean, based on the scriptures we've read, you can do lots of different things and be a godly young man, can't you? You can do lots of different things. You can be a plumber. You can be a welder. You can even be a pastor. But you have to do all of these things with a certain attitude and frame of mind. I was reading this book by, this, by these two authors, Traeger and Gilbert, called The Gospel at Work. And they basically argue that regular, ordinary jobs are God's means of shaping you. And they're actually really good for you. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't shy away from hard work because actually God is using these jobs in your life to actually shape you and strengthen you and sanctify you because hard work is actually really, really good for you. And they say, uh, how should I choose a God-honoring career? Uh, they make kind of a, a list, a list of three must-haves for a job and a list of threes it would be nice to have as a job, Right? So when you're making your career choice, just kind of take these six things, write them down and say, these are the must-haves and these are the would-be-really-nice-to-have kind of things when you're thinking about career choices, right? First off, does this job glorify God? Will this job bring glory to him or shame to him? There are some jobs out there that you just cannot do. I was talking to somebody recently. And they were asking me something. Okay, it was Matt Carr. He was asking me uh, a question like, what is something about you that I don't know or something like that? And I was like, man, I don't know. Uh, I once was really involved in acting. And I was really good at acting, actually. I know. Surprise, surprise. Right? Matter of fact, I did pretty well for myself. I went to a few state competitions and I, I did a few star performances, but really it doesn't even matter anymore. It's so, so long ago, I almost don't even care. But hey, it shaped me still today. And he asked me, what, did you ever think about being an actor? I was like, yeah, I thought about it. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it tremendously, but it was always that I had this problem, right? I don't feel like I could be, I don't think I could make a lot of money being a good actor because I couldn't get a lot of jobs. Or, you know, because it's just like all the jobs out there, being an actor, aren't really that God-glorifying jobs. I would have to be cheap. I'd have to work for, like, Christian movies. You make no money doing that. Well, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Does this job glorify God? First and primary question. Second question, second must-have. Does this job permit me to live a godly life? Once again, will I have to... 
Will I have to constantly be compromising my convictions to work this job? Or will I not be able to live a quality and a quiet life that honors God and raises a God-honoring family because of this job? Does this job provide for my needs and allow me, number three, to be a blessing to others? So the first three, once again, are, does this job glorify God? Does this job permit me to live a a godly life? And then third, does this job provide for my needs and even allow me to be a blessing to others? Those are the must-haves of a job choice. You can do a lot of different things with those qualities, can't you? These are the nice-to-have uh, questions to ask yourself. If if one if you can have one of those top three, if you can have all those top threes checked off and have a few of these next three, uh, three questions checked off, great, great. But these are not essentials. Uh, question number four to ask yourself, does this job benefit society in some way? Be nice if it did, but it's not essential. I can glorify God and not in some way, benefit society, apparently. I can be a slave for somebody else and still glorify God on the basis of Colossians 3. Does this job benefit society? Number number five, does this job take advantage of my gifts and talents? It's not necessary. It's great if it does, but it's not necessary if it doesn't take advantage of my gifts and talents. And then number six, is this job something I want to do? It'd be nice if it was, but it's not essential to being satisfied as a godly man and to having a quiet life and to working with my hands and to pursuing self-mastery. Matter of fact, they make this, this statement here in a quote. If you choose a job that uses your gifts but doesn't pay enough to provide the basics for yourself and your family, the Bible says you are living in sin. Believe it or not, money is a must-have. Wow. Biblically speaking, it's important to have a job that actually makes money. Otherwise, you're in sin. What is he talking about right there? That is 1 Timothy, by the way. 1 Timothy, I'm going to read it to you. This is a verse that blows me away every time I read it. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, it says this. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith. And is worse than an unbeliever. A disciplinable offense. Right? Yeah. You might have a job that's really satisfying, using all your gifts, but it's not paying the bills, man. And therefore you're in sin. Because you're not providing for your family. And you're worse than an unbeliever. According to 1 Timothy 5, 8. So you need to choose a job based on these things. And doesn't this just flip flip the paradigm of what we are called to pursue. The world would flip this lift directly on its head, wouldn't it? It would say, where should you start thinking about what kind of job you want? Well, what do I want to do? Secondly, um, will this take advantage of my gifts and talents that are so important to me? Thirdly, will this benefit society in any way? I don't care about God, godly living or anything like that. I want to be personally satisfied. Oh, no. The godly life, the godly Christian young man doesn't care about that. He aspires to greater things. He aspires to things of brotherly love. I want to live a quiet life. I want to seek self-mastery, and I want to work with my hands. I can do anything as long as it is glorifying to God, permitting me to live a godly life, and providing for my basic needs and the basic needs of others. So the bottom line is, 
It might be more glorifying to God to find a solid job that enables you to live a solid Christian life and to raise a solid family than to achieve some romantic destiny that you have sketched out in your heart and your mind. And this is really the, the turning point for me. I had all these dreams and all these aspirations, man, things I really wanted to do, really these gifts that I thought God had for me, but it came down to the fact that, guess what, I wanted to get married. And I couldn't provide for a wife by being an actor or you know, painting or something like that. I actually needed to get a job that paid me for something. And I know that's a little bit harsh and a little bit extreme. I'm not saying you can't have a job like that, because guess what? Through pursuing hard work, seeking to live a quiet life, and seeking to self, uh, seek self-mastery and to work with my hands, what did I find? I found people in the church affirming me in things, and suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm teaching the Bible to you at a winter retreat using all sorts of personally satisfying gifts that God has given me. But that's because I aspired to live a godly life, Pursue a job that allowed me to live a godly life and glorified God and provided for others. Keep your priorities right and you will be astonished where God will take you. And I'm not using myself as some incredible example. I'm just saying this is the story probably of all these men in this room, right? We have found more satisfaction, more peace, more purpose, more joy in aspiring to ordinary Christian masculine work than we would have ever done following some sort of ethereal dream. Maybe some of you are saying, but that's so ordinary. Yes, it is. But it's also, let me tell you, more peaceful. It's more peaceful. There's nothing quite like the joy of having a peaceful life, let me tell you. Nothing in all the world. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Oh, there's a whole other part. But we'll stop right there. No, let me just say this. Let me just say this. Turn back over to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1, uh, 4. Notice this. Notice this. What does this, this life result in? Can't, I, I have to say this part. Uh, what does this kind of life result in? Look at the outcome of an ordinary life. A boring, ordinary life. Verse 12, you will walk properly towards outsiders and not be in need of anything. You will be a part of a church that's pursuing gospel ministry. Rejoice in your gifts in that church and the gifts God has given you in that church. And you will not be in any need. It's God's way of providing for you to pursue an ordinary godly life. And that is a way God has given you to find great, great satisfaction. Now let's, let's hang up right there. And then we're going to just ask some questions about work and life and life choices. Let's pray really quick. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this night that you've given us to enjoy one another and to also talk frankly about what it means to be a, a man and have manly aspirations. Help us to aspire for the right things, to aspire for your glory, for godliness in our own life, and to be able to provide for our life and for the life of others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.